This is WIOA, and you're listening to What is Opera Anyway? the podcast. I'm Josh Lau. Hello, I'm Josh Lau, and I'm a stage manager who doesn't know a lot about opera. In fact, the only operas I know are the ones I've worked on. This podcast is part of an educational program for the nonprofit organization aptly called What is Opera Anyway? Every other week, I'll be learning about anything and everything opera-related, and you're welcome to listen and learn along with me. My hope is to learn more about opera and to get closer to answering that essential question, what is opera anyway? My guest today is Alexander McCargar. He's a scenic designer whose research extends into the Baroque period, which is the 17th and 18th century. He has a background in architecture with degrees from the Rhode Island School of Design and an MFA in stage design from the Yale School of Drama. Alex will tell us all about the Bibiana family, who they are, why they are influential to operatic stage design, and why their work has been largely forgotten. They're not quite like the politically influential Medici family, who were huge patrons of the arts during the Renaissance era, which was a century before, but rather the Bibiana family was a family of designers and architects whose stagecraft dominated the Baroque period. So prepare yourself for an Italian family tree of stage design. All right. Hi, Alex. Hi, Josh. Um, so can you tell us uh, a little about yourself, a little more about yourself and why you're, you're speaking with us today? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, my name is Alex and I am a stage designer. Um, for mostly opera and theater. Um, but I also do a lot of research into the history of scenography. Um, it really interests me how, you know, sort of the visual aspects of opera and performance evolved over time. So that's definitely something that I, I've, I've sort of researched different elements of and different aspects of. How long um, have you, you have a background in architecture. Mm -hmm. um, how long have you also studied um, scenography? Um, well, I did, I, I did my master's in, you know, practical stage design, like a, a fine arts degree, but, um, probably in the last four or five years, I've kind of been getting more interested in, in history of, um, history of design for performance. Um, it kind of stemmed from an interest in, um, history of architecture. I did some fine arts, I, um, sorry, I did some art history classes in undergrad, um, and did like a concentration in art history and that kind of led into pretty much all just visual and design um, history. Oh, cool. So so today we're going to be talking about the Bibiana family. Am I pronounce? first of all, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the Bibiana. Bibiana. Bibiana family, yeah. Bibiana. Okay, there's a little uh, in the middle. <laughs> okay, this is, um, um, who are they? Yeah, so um, yeah, don't expect many people to, to know who they are. Um, they were a very famous family of stage designers and theater architects um, from the late 17th century into the 1800s. So 
sort of like around, you know, the middle 1600s, um, all the way up until the time of, of Mozart in the, in the late 1700s. So this is all pre-Mozart opera. Yeah, we're, we're talking, area. yeah, pretty much today we're talking pre, pre-Mozart. Um, and yeah, and they, they worked pretty much in almost every court in Europe um, and every major royal court and other noble courts. Um, this was a time in Europe when people, you know, the wealthy and the, royal, the royalty were really trying to show off to one another and sort of express their power and wealth. And one of the main ways that they did this was through um, basically putting on like massive scale operas and performances um, and big festivals and events. And so they essentially needed, you know, event planners and architects and designers to um, to design these. Um, and the Bibienas, they were uh, about three generations of designers. So they kind of passed on their knowledge um, they apprenticed, you know, the younger ones apprenticed for the older relatives and, and whatnot. Um, and eventually there was just a huge demand for their work. Um, they did magnificent, you know, really amazing, you know, overdone sort of Baroque um, design. So you imagine like curly cues everywhere and, and all sorts of ornamentation and decoration. So they really sort of overwhelmed with this um, spectacle. Um, so yeah, they really um, they really made it around around Europe and and impacted the courts. So is this the Baroque era that we're talking about, or what? What sort of um, in parallel music history? What what sort of do you know where the 17th and 18th century is in music wise? Yeah, yeah, this is definitely definitely the Baroque era um, into sort of late Baroque and like almost the very beginning of sort of neoclassical. Um, but it's really, they really stemmed pretty much throughout the Baroque and they're, they're referred to as um, Baroque stage designers. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've never heard of this um, family um, of artists before. I mean, I'm not, not great in my European history, but, you know, if, if this family sort of had this influence of stage design in opera, I wonder why I've never heard about them. <laughs> how, how did you hear about the Bibianas in the first place? Yeah. Um, well, what, what does exist from their work um, are a lot of etchings and engravings. So, for example, um, if you look at old libretti from, from operas in the, you know, the 16, 17, 1800s, oftentimes they had um, little images sort of print, printed with the words and um, they were sort of opened up to you know, certain pages and they were representations of the stage designs. So um, that's one of the, the major reasons why we have, where we know their work is through these preserved etchings and engravings. Um, so I did come across their work through some of these, these images. Um, and then as soon as I started to sort of research them a little bit, you know, they kind of sprung up here and there. Um, as I mentioned, they worked in, in so many different courts of Europe. So if you, if you dig a little bit into sort of what performances were going on um, during this time period, you do their names kind of, you know, start to come up through the woodwork or sort of pop up, um, and then you can kind of trace them and track them. Um, yeah. And, sorry. No, just gonna just Go gonna ahead. say getting into your um, your earlier your aspect or question, thinking about um, why they're not really remembered today, and right. and it's really I mean the reason why they're not they're not remembered is because so much of their work was ephemeral. You know, if you think I mean even today, if an opera is put on the set you know, it's not, it's not usually saved. It, it always depends on the theater. I mean, the Met 
in New York will save sets for a number of years. But once the offer is retired, they will maybe put certain pieces in storage or sort of archive them. But, um, you know, back in the 17th and 18th century, a lot of things were just thrown away. So it was really about this kind of, you know, being in the moment and having this massive spectacle. Um, they also, most of the things they built and designed um, were also made from very perishable and, and fragile materials. So, you know, they really were meant for these certain events and not really, they weren't really meant to last beyond that. Um, there are even instances where they designed, you know, entire theaters that were, that were to be built just to host a specific opera. And then essentially when that was finished, they would just tear down the whole theater because it wasn't built to last. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there, there's really, I mean, the, um, the amount of wealth that went into it too is definitely. Yeah. What a, what a waste I of know, money. I know. <laughs> So do you know specifically what kind of materials they work with? Like what were by perishable, did you mean they burned easily? And this was, you know, before, you know, electricity. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to use fire. Um, did, did they, did they burn like that or did they rot because maybe it rained and it like what kind of specific materials were ephemeral? Yeah, yeah. I mean, really all of the above, as you mentioned, um, they did a lot of things out of paper mache. So this kind of, um, you know, if, if people have used that in art classes or things or come across it, it it's sort of like a, um, a material that hardens, but it's essentially the base of it is just paper. Um, and you kind of let it dry into a, like you can sort of sculpt it. Um, but it, that also doesn't last if you sort of, you know, re-wet it a number of times. Um, a lot of things were also built of wood. Um, so, you know, over, over the years, it was, as you say, it would be very easy to burn um, and also get eaten by bugs and termites and things. Um, a lot, they had a lot, you know, a lot of sets were made from hanging uh, canvas backdrops. So again, they were very hard because of their size, they were hard to store and preserve. Um, mm. And, you know, even, even a number of the theaters that they designed were just, just simply burned down. Um, I mean, to get into, and, and they also, they also designed a lot of these temporary um, monuments. So, for example, like triumphal arches, if, if a um, king or queen might be entering a certain city, they wanted to sort of celebrate this entrance and they would just build a giant um, giant archway out of wood and paper mache. Um, <laughs> just like a very, a temporary exactly, gateway exactly, for the yeah. king and queen to yeah, enter Yeah, it was in. all about spectacle, yeah. And then also um, funerary monuments or um, catafalques, which were, Basically, if, if the emperor or um, of, of the Habsburg Empire or something, or like a king died, they would build this giant construction inside a church, um, sort of, you know, with candles and kind of celebrating um, the, the life of this person. But again, they were, they were just meant to be up for a short period of time uh, during mourning. So. so definitely not like the Egyptians. Exactly, who... yeah. <laughs> like their stuff is still being exactly. found. Yeah, not much was made from from stone that the Bibian is designed. So so they designed more than just um, for the stage and opera. Did they do things like, um, well, we talked about temporary, you know, I, I called them gateways for yeah, the king and yeah. queen, but did they build like architecturally buildings or churches or did they just do like the, in, are they more like interior designers and less structural? Mm -hmm. um, they did a lot of them within the family did train as architects. Um, but this was also at a time when they didn't, you know, people weren't so, um, you know, boxed in or compartmentalized into certain um, disciplines. So um, they trained as architects and they did design some buildings. Like there are some churches still standing today. Um, there's one in Mannheim, Germany, 
that still stands. Um, there's one in Northern Italy outside of um, Parma that they designed a whole, like a giant church. Um, but for the most part, they were sort of more interior designers or decorators and, and theater designers and architects. Um, I mean, some of, some of them more than others specialized in actually designing theater buildings um, and sort of experimenting with the arrangement of the seating inside um, and also how, how best um, sound would, would work and echo and, and sort of the acoustic properties of some of these theaters. So they were in some ways sound designers or sound engineers too. Um, and a lot of how theaters are arranged today, the sort of layout is somewhat um, you know, owed to them. Yeah, the last the last time the the most recent person I can think of who sort of really said none of these architectural buildings are working for me. I'm just going to build my own place, and that was yeah, Wagner, yeah. and he built what is the Fischbühlhaus in Bayreuth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually, it's it's funny that you bring that up because um, there's there's a very it's not so well known, but there's a nether theater in Bayreuth, not you know very far from Wagner's Fischbühlhaus called the uh, Margraviel Opera House. And it was actually designed by one of the Bibianas. And it's one of um, two theaters that they designed out of you know, the large, large handful um, that still stands in pretty much its original condition. Um, and Wagner was actually oh, wow. aware of that theater. And I think he did actually put on some of his operas there before he built the, the Festspiel House there um, in Bayreuth. And, but eventually I think the theater was, you know, too small and it was very delicate. It's this kind of Baroque jewel box, um, this one that the Bibian has designed. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a pretty amazing little gem if anyone is in, um, in Bayreuth for the, the Wagner Festival. Yeah, yeah. I see. <laughs> do, do you know if they do operas in that Bibian Yeah, they do. Um, there, there's a, a small Baroque festival. Um, I haven't been myself. I'd love to go, but I believe it's every year, I think in the fall or summer. Um, and, but it actually, the whole, the entire theater was just renovated. Um, it was a four or five year renovation project and it's a listed, um, UNESCO world heritage site. So it's definitely, oh. definitely worth visiting and checking out. What's it called it's again? It's the, um, Margraviel Opera House. It refers to the Margrave was sort of the, the ruler of Bayreuth. It wasn't like a, like a royal king or queen, but they were sort of almost like a, like a duke or something or count. Okay. Wow. That's awesome. I'm yeah, going to check that out. Beautiful theater. What did design for the stage look like before the Bibianas mm -hmm. and after the Bibianas? Like how, how much did they influence um, what we, you know, think of that time period yeah, today? Yeah, who were their influences and who did they yeah, influence? Yeah. So, I mean, before them, there, there are already a number of, of famous stage designers um, that sort of, you know, really started to experiment a bit with um, how the stage was, was laid out. But up until the Bibianas, it was pretty much um, what we call, the stage was arranged in pretty much what we call one point perspective. So if you imagine like, you know, looking at a room directly facing the back wall, and then you, you know, you're kind of staring straight at something. And the Bibianas, they came in and developed this thing called um, Shena Per Angolo, or essentially two-point perspective, which then shifted everything at sort of a, like a, a strange, you know, obtuse or acute angle. So now if someone was sitting in front of the stage, they weren't looking at it directly head on, but they might be seeing a building at an angle, like a strange angle. Um, they also pushed the sort of idea of one-point perspective. And so they 
they would have rooms that looked like they just went on into infinity. Um, and this was all done through also on stage, um, this kind of forced perspective. So if you imagine a stage is a pretty shallow space if you if you compare it to like a giant palace or a massive room or something so if you wanted to put a large royal room on stage or a you know a giant garden or a, you know any sort of large space you have to kind of give it this forced perspective which which basically means that um things drawn in the background for example that the backdrop and the way back were actually much smaller than they would be in real life but to people sitting in the audience that would appear simply farther away, um, just as you know when you look at something far in the distance, it's it's smaller. Um, so they really experimented with that and pushed it and made things look you know much farther away than any designer had really done before. Um, and then using this Shana Paangolo, where they really um, really you know made things at these sort of interesting and strange angles and started to imply that there was much more space off stage. You know, the one-point perspective really directs all your attention to just what's there. But with this two-point perspective, um, you begin to imagine these spaces kind of leading off stage. Um, and I, I should probably jump in and explain a little bit about sort of what the um, what a Baroque stage, basically the the physical elements of it. And if yeah, if you yes, imagine um, if you imagine basically tall panels, just flat panels, like almost like modern flats. Um, on either side of the stage that kind of, you know, just are mirrored or, or symmetric, um, symmetrical. And then if you imagine each one of those going back, so there's essentially a series of these, like these wings or panels that then go back into space. And then between them, um, hanging from down from the top, but just a little bit peeking onto the stage would be um, like modern borders, we call them. So essentially just like you could do hanging clouds or have any sort of, you know, a ceiling um, but all sort of in a series of these flat hanging panels. And at the very, very back, there'd be like a full painted backdrop. And what happens in order to change the scenes, um, these panels on the sides and above would essentially, you know, fly out or, or move off stage. And another panel would actually slide and move into place. So there's sort of a series of these um, panels that sort of hide one another. And then when different scenes, you know, when the scene changes, they would kind of reveal them. Um, yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. I think I've seen this this um, video on on Facebook of this, like, weird, not weird, um, very classical, bar I think it was a Baroque opera. They were doing, a, like, a scene change. And then I, I saw these, like, panels on the side, and, and there were um, there were clouds up top, Um and, and the ceiling and then it sort of looked like somebody was pulling like shades or a blind and like everything just like yeah. folded and it was all of a sudden this interior mm -hmm. um yeah exactly was, was that, that's exactly what i mean I yeah yeah and it's amazing the amount of um you know machinery that it takes below stage and on the sides and above the stage i mean what a lot of people don't realize is um usually there is a giant essentially like, like a telephone pole under the stage that would be um, turned and rotated. And the strings that pull these side wings on and off stage would be you know, connected and wrapped around that. So you'd have the whole series of these side wings or panels would, would swing in or out at once. Um, but there were you know, tons of people working below the stage and above. And you know, it's not to mention there's also you know, trap doors would come up 
um, you know, people could like, if there's a god, a goddess, they could fly down from the clouds on sort of a mechanism that would be lowered. Um, you know, sometimes there were uh, fountains where it wasn't actual water, but there would be sort of like rolling sheets that could then, you know, there might be like a little child on stage, essentially turning a crank that would make it look like water was flowing. <laughs> so there were, there were many, many different <laughs> kinds of tricks that they used. Um, but the main aspects were these sort of backdrops, um, hanging borders, and then side wings. Wow, talk about yeah, stagecraft. Yeah. Nowadays, we see things, mm -hmm. you know, automation, it's like press of a button, oh, look, there's this track on the floor, that's going to yeah, take things. Yeah. But like, I mean, now we can't have a dozen people working in close proximity under the stage, sort of like cranking the screw together to get this whole piece, this exactly. contraption yeah, to yeah. work. But I guess that they were sort of maybe, would you say the original, the OG automators? Yeah, of yeah. Yeah. Scenic design, like fully integrated. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they, they really, um, they really developed these, this machinery and, and because of it, they needed a whole, this whole group of people to, to work it. So yeah, yeah. Definitely. Okay, so let's go a little deeper into the BBNF mm -hmm. family. Um, who who do they consist of? Like, is is it um, is it like a patriarchal mm -hmm. family? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, very much so. I mean, they um, would we know anybody from? Well, the thing is, I mean, them? the reason why um, in the title I wanted to say BBNF family and not necessarily certain people is because um, you know, they they worked so closely together and a lot of times shared their knowledge that it's hard for modern art historians to separate some of their work out. You know, there are drawings that they're still, um, you know, unsure exactly which Bibiana <laughs> drew them, drew it. Um, so there's definitely, there's a lot of confusion as to, you know, who did exactly what in terms of, you know, leftover sketches and drawings and things. But luckily a lot of um, like those etchings that I mentioned before were always credited to specific ones. Um, that have been handed down to us. But in terms of in terms of the family, they the first one came from a small town called Bibiena in Tuscany. Um, and he he basically became his name was Gali. Um, oftentimes the family is also referred to as the Gali Bibiena family. Um, they kind of they uh, yeah Gali's exactly. from Bibiena. Um, and that first one that really became prominent, he became mayor of the town. And so he had a son, Giovanni Maria, who then, um, I guess, because of that, that privilege or that wealth, was able to train as an artist. Um, and this was, he, he, he wasn't so much a, a stage designer, but he, he got into doing, um, you know, painting, fresco work, um, designing altars and things. But his children, um, Ferdinando and Francesco, both really became, they were sort of the first major, major Bibienas. Um, in terms of like how they affected the theater world. Um, Ferdinando became really famous for his stage designs. Um, he's the one that actually published a treatise on perspective. So, um, you know, really how this Shena per, per Angelo worked. Um, and, and that really, you know, because of that book, he gained a large following and a lot of students. Um, he had a lot of pupils and apprentices. So that's how a lot of his, his fame and sort of the family um, you know, influence sort of got out to a greater, a greater public, greater world. Um, but Ferdinando's brother, um, Francesco, also became pretty famous, but more for designs of theaters. So really, like, as I mentioned, the whole, the whole theater itself. Um, and Francesco, he designed a very famous theater in Verona, which doesn't exist anymore. 
Um, he designed one, I believe, in Bologna or Mantova, um, which doesn't exist anymore. So there's, <laughs> I mean, you, they, they, as I said, they, they really designed a lot of actual theater buildings, which unfortunately were not, no longer exist. Um, but so it was really, so Ferdinando and Francesco really sort of got the name out there in the theater world. Um, and then Ferdinando's sons, um, two of which Giuseppe and Alessandro became very, very famous. And Giuseppe is one of the most famous Bibienas. Um, he also had the opportunity to do the most work. Um, he worked mainly, he was born in Parma in Northern Italy, but worked mainly in um, Vienna for the Habsburg court. So of course, at that time, the Habsburgs were very, very wealthy and you know, they, they really wanted to show off their power. So anything they could do in terms of event and festival and spectacle to sort of show off, um, they, they did. And a lot of these, like, as I mentioned before, these, these etchings, um, they weren't only printed in libretti, but they were also spread and sent to other courts. So for example, you know, the, Habsburg, um, the Habsburgs, they might send a series of these etchings over to you know, Louis XIV in France or something, or you know, Louis XV and say, hey, look at, our, look at our spectacle, look at the opera we put on, you know, how amazing is this? And then that would sort of encourage the other, you know, the um, designers in France or the other, you know, royal courts to try to compete and have even greater spectacles. Wow, spectacle on spectacle, exactly, trying to one-up exactly. each other. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize the sort of this, this early um, aspect of opera, that it was such a, a, a political, um, you know, maneuver and such a political force um, because, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but also the content a lot of, of a lot of these operas mirrored or echoed what was actually going on in real life. If, um, you know, for example, there might be an, an opera about, you know, some ancient mythological hero, but it might be sort of a, um, a parallel to a, a ruler of the 17th or 18th century. So I'm looking at a couple of, a list of uh, titles that at least I'm familiar with, I've seen, of operas in the 17th and 18th century. And, and maybe we can give our listeners a sort of time period frame mm -hmm. of um, this Bibiana family has coexisted in. Um, I, I see Handel's Giulio Cesare mm -hmm. or Julius Caesar, Purcell or no, Purcell. How was it pronounced? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Purcell. <laughs> Purcell. And we got Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. I've actually was fortunate to do a production of that. Um, and as well, Monteverdi's L'Incoronazione di Popea, the coronation of Popea. Um, another Purcell, the Fairy Queen. Um, another Monteverdi, L'Orfeo, which is Orfeo and Eurydice. So, and oh, Vivaldi's Orlando. Um, so... Mm -hmm. I've I've heard of those. Um, they're definitely I I would say on the the early music side. Um, I'm not as familiar with them, but um, just to give our listeners a an idea of what time period we're talking about. Given modern technology, could we were talking about you know these theaters or de set designs stages couldn't last for a long time but maybe they were using different materials and they didn't have steel yet or something like plastic um 
So given modern technology and what we have today, do you think any of the Bibiana's designs could be executed and actually, you know, like be done, used yeah, for an yeah, opera? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, we just have to sort of adapt them to, you know, some of these, these modern, um, you know, tech, technical equipment and pieces. Um, but yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there have been some productions. Um, there's one... I believe in, in Paris, I'm trying to, I can't remember the exact opera, but there was one in Paris a number of years ago that um, essentially was a recreation of a Baroque stage. Um, but I assume behind all that sort of, you know, Baroque visual, you know, aspects and, and pieces, um, they would have, you know, these tech, more modern technical machines. But yeah, because a lot of the, um, a lot of the Bibiana, you know, the, the things that they created, these side wings and borders and backdrops and sort of flying contraptions you know those are definitely all things that we can do today um albeit a lot more safely <laughs> um i can't imagine <laughs> in <the times> they, <laughs> people might have fallen from some of these things um but yeah and especially especially with the modern use of um like led lights and things that would be extremely helpful uh, you know if the bbns had like led lights it would be i think a lot of their theaters would still exist <laughs> Um, you know, a lot of these um, panels and things that I was talking about, like these side wings made of wood and paper mache, and then these these hanging um, borders that were canvas, and then the whole canvas backdrop. You know, they didn't have like today. A lot of things are sprayed with like a fireproofing substance, um, but at the time, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't have lights the way that we think we have them today in theaters. So these things would be covered in candles. So if you imagine the theater being essentially a wooden box. I mean, maybe with a stone facade, <laughs> um, but it's essentially a wooden box. The seating would have mostly been built out of wood. Um, and then on stage, you have these sliding wooden panels made of with paper elements and then can hanging canvas, you know, curtains, basically. Um, they would have had, they would have been, had candles all on the backsides of these things to illuminate the other elements of the stage. So we talk, I talked about this sort of deep space that the Bibianas were trying to create. And a lot of that was due to um, the light effects that they were able to achieve through the use of, you know, candles everywhere. So you think of all these moving things with candles, um, it would have been definitely to, we could recreate some other things today in a lot safer, in a lot safer way. Yeah. Well, now today, you know, one, one of the things that sort of like puts a dagger in my heart is um, projections and like just projecting this backdrop of, you know, this, this pastoral scene. And I, I feel like what's missing there is this sort of visceral, you know, somebody painted that. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have worked on a, a couple of shows myself um, where I've seen, you know, the process of um, painters laying out this huge canvas and actually painting something that was um, you could see and you could just feel the effort in there. Um, and that's definitely missed. It's, it's definitely not projection of let me grab this thing from Google yeah. images or yeah. something. And yeah, definitely projecting definitely. it no, up the there. amount of, of work and, and labor that went into some of these, these pieces um, and that, that sort of, you know, hand painted backdrop look, I think would have been really, really special. So we're talking a lot of about European opera and European art form. Does the Bibiana family, do they have any influences in the United States? Like, um, does their artwork sort of 
you know, speak to Americans or would would we see it as, oh, that's very European. That's somebody um, else's culture. It's, it's probably bru- uh, viewed as very European. Um, you know, some of their, I have seen, you know, certain productions and uses of sort of Baroque effects, definitely in, in American opera, um, but mostly for, you know, productions of these Baroque operas. Um, I think just especially, you know, when some of the first European settlers came over to the U.S., they were, they were mostly, you know, Protestant. And so this, this, this culture of, of theater and opera wasn't as present. Um, you know, a lot of these, these royal courts that put it on were heavily Catholic, the, you know, in France and the Habsburgs. And sort of um, this, this use of and designing for events and these, you know, displays and things were usually for, you know, baptisms and very sort of Catholic events. And, you know, so I think in the U.S. it's mostly at this point just kind of, you know, studied as a European uh, phenomenon or era. Um, but I think, you know, it, we, could, we could sort of use some of their work to also make, make statements about, um, you know, sort of how we, how we view different cultures. I mean, one thing, one thing that they did sometimes um, in some of their, their designs for operas was to look to other cultures outside of Europe. And of course, these are, when they did that, these, you know, they were looking at maybe travel, um, you know, etchings that people had made from their travels, um, you know, descript- written descriptions, um, not, you know, I don't, I don't know any instances of any of them leaving Europe. So any of the Bibiana family members. So um, some of these representations of other cultures, especially, um, you know, in Japan and China and, you know, from the Ottoman Empire and Turkey um, were very sort of imaginary and, and definitely quite racist at, at points. Um, but I think it is, it is interesting to see some of their, their influences. So I think um, in terms of you know, we can, we can look at some of the things they did and maybe have a critical eye um, if, we, if we use them or, or implement some of their designs or their way of working today. Mm-hmm. So why should we care about the <laughs> Bibiana family today? Like they were, they were so long ago. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what can we learn um, from them? I mean, especially, especially with this, um, this concept of Shana Per Angelo, this two-point perspective of, of looking at things on stage at sort of odd angles and things and not having everything be perfectly symmetrical. Um, you know, that's something that is, is you know, used in almost every, every design today, no matter what it is. Is that what we look is that what we look at on stage today? We look at a two-point... I don't, I don't have a very good um, yeah. vocabulary on Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of things today are, are, are actually built three-dimensionally, whereas a lot of what the Bibianas did with these panels and backdrops were sort of flat painted. Um, but it is essentially, when we look at a stage today, it is, you know, it is a, a sort of actual three-dimensional version of sort of a you know, three-point perspective. Um, uh, sorry, two-point perspective. Um, so it would definitely definitely that that aspect of kind of not having this the symmetry um and also just the way that they they sort of establish these um you know they really concretize these like side panels and backdrops which are still you know side wings are still used in theater today um oftentimes they might just be black to sort of hide the sides of the stage and sort of the equipment that they don't want the audience to see um but the basic stage layout and oftentimes like like even with a raked stage um, these were all things that were happening in the, the work that the, that the Bibianas were, were doing. So that's part of this lasting legacy. Um, 
Yeah, the idea of the, yeah, the yeah. wings exactly. of a theater. Um, and they sort of, in some of their, their actual designs of theaters, they experimented a bit with that. I mean, there are, um, if you look at the architectural plans that exist of some of these theaters that unfortunately no longer exist in, in reality, um, but you see that, you know, sometimes the stage was two times the size of the auditorium where the audience sits. Um, and then, and then other versions, it might be really small. Um, <laughs> you see like the audience might be in a horseshoe or a circle, a half circle, or, you know, there are many different shapes and things that they experimented with in terms of the, um, um, the stage itself to kind of perfect it. That goes to show you where they, what they thought was yeah, more yeah, important exactly. to the exactly. audience at the stage. <laughs> and in, in terms of their, um, their legacy too, it, it's, I should mention, um, they had a, a profound impact on Piranesi, which is, you know, a lot of young architects and art historians definitely, he's, he's one of the names that comes up a lot. Um, but he, he created a series of, of etchings mainly of, um, you know, Rome and sort of ruins and things in mostly Rome. Um, and sort of, he sort of imagined what um, ancient Rome might have been like. But he used a lot of these in his etchings, these sort of these strange angles and exaggerated perspectives. Um, and he was, what a lot of people don't know is that he was really impacted, Piranesi, by the Bibianas and by set design and stage design. So the, um, you know, and even for, you know, fresco painting or trompe l'oeil, this, this effect of um, painting oftentimes in churches or palaces, um, you know, painting a flat part of the wall to make it look like there's a giant architectural, um, you know, building or, or some sort of, you know, forced perspective view that makes it look like it's much deeper than it really is. Um, these were definitely heavily influenced by the Bibianas. So I would say, I would definitely say countless artists, um, you know, painters, um, engravers, and, and all sorts of creative thinkers were influenced by, by their work. And what would opera, what would a Bibiana opera look like today if, or maybe not today, if, if they all, you know, were, were living in the mm -hmm. 17th, 18th century together and they got together and wrote a family opera. And of course, you know, they'll fight over who designed the set. Um, what if they designed the costumes? What if they composed music um, and wrote the words? Um, what kind of opera would that look like or sound like? And what kind of story um, would well, they, were, they, they tell? Um, were pretty much only visual designers. So they, they, would have, they wouldn't have um, written any music, um, but I imagine they, they probably went to the opera a lot. Um, and even though they did overlap at a lot of different courts, um, for example, a few of them uh, were in Vienna at the same time, um, from from evidence, you know, through different archival sources and things, they were, they were pretty good at, at balancing things out. So, and working together. So I don't, I don't think they were too competitive, um, but it would make a great, you know, great story to try to <laughs> try to imagine what they would have done. Um, but in terms of what some of these operas would look like, I mean, there are, there are a couple that um, I, yeah, I'll definitely, they're, they're, they're not the standard, but they're pretty exciting. Um, I mean, there was one opera from 1716, um, Angelica Vin, uh, Vincitrice di Alcina. So it's sort of like Angelica wins over Alcina. And it's, um, I mean, music historians might know, but there are a lot of operas um, from the 17th and 18th century about this sorceress Alcina, who is essentially um, 
you know, she, she sort of reigned in this, this island and would try to seduce and get, you know, um, shipwrecked sailors to fall in love with her. And then when she was done with them um, or bored, she would turn them into trees and rocks. <laughs> so, and this island was filled with them. So anyway, that's sort of mm-hmm. this basic premise. Um, but this one particular version of this story, it was written by um, Johann Fuchs. So I think the, the early music historians might know him. Um, I don't know if, I don't think all of the original music for this opera survives, but there are a number of large engravings that um, Giuseppe de Biena designed. Um, but this, the opera would have had these, it was, it was done in an open air theater. So again, sort of a, um, a, a theater that was designed outdoors, not really meant to last beyond a few performances. Um, so building almost like, if you imagine building like a football stadium only for one game, <laughs> it was kind of, kind of like that. It's probably a good analogy. Um, and then if the football stadium were covered in ornamentation and curlicues and columns and pillars and everything, um, but anyway, to this opera, you know, they they embrace this idea of Alcina being a sorceress. So, um, you know, there's a sort of extravagant palace um, with all sorts of you know little side rooms and 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 decorations and sort of, um, you know, arches and columns and all sorts of beautiful things. And then if you imagine at the end when Alcina, who is considered more of the evil sorceress um, of, um, compared to um, Angelica, um, basically you see her palace in ruins. So if you imagine sort of creating this amazing giant design and then having, you know, the second design of it in the opera would be basically the whole thing just destroyed. Um, but this was these islands that Alcina and then... And, um, Angelica were on were actually in this um, done in this as floating stages in a pond um, outside of right now it's actually a suburb or like an a, actually a, um, a neighborhood of Vienna that's sort of now built over but it was basically this kind of pleasure palace or summer palace and they had a giant pond there and the Giuseppe Bibiena designed these floating islands um, and then essentially at the end of the opera, these islands would um, both sort of float to the sides of the pond. And there was a giant fake naval battle um, of Alcina's forces fighting off Angelica's <laughs> forces. Um, and yeah, exactly. And so if you imagine a lot of, you know, when, we think of when we think of Baroque theaters, they're usually pretty small. So the composer, um, Johann Fuchs, would have had to probably, you know, amp up the orchestra a bit it said that he used a lot of um you know trumpets and horns and sort of louder instruments too to have this if this whole thing was outside by a lake you know acoustics were probably not in his Mm. favor um so in terms of you can imagine that would have been a pretty extravagant example but that would be um one of the things that that they designed well alex thank you very much i definitely went into this episode not knowing anything about the Bibiana family, not even sure if I was pronouncing it correctly. And now I feel like I got a really good grasp of, you know, their, who they are, their style of work, and sort of what, what could tell me what a Bibiana sort of design would look like. And unfortunately, they don't really exist today. But I'm sure there are pictures out there we can share Um, with our listeners. um upload some images. I think that'll be on the website and some links to, um, you know, a lot of museums have some of their etchings and drawings. Um, They did leave behind some some sketchbooks, which are mostly kept now in Munich and the um, Theater Museum or Theater Museum in Vienna. Um, But yeah, most of their work is now scattered across 
across the world. So yeah, I'm glad. Well, good thing that there's exactly. good thing that their yeah. sketches at least still survived. And once once this um pandemic is over and we're we're able to go to museums again, I'll I'll be sure to yeah. you know look for their name. I'll be like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember definitely. that. I remember hearing Great. about that. Thank you, Josh. All right. Thank you, Alex. That was my interview with Alex McCargar, a scenic designer who's done a, a lot of research about the Bibiana family and their influence on operatic stage design. To learn more about Alex, he's got a website. You can check him out at alexandermccargar.com, where you can see his design portfolio and photos from productions he's worked on. Alex is originally from Andover, Massachusetts, but now he's based in Vienna, Austria. Thank you for listening and learning with me on What is Opera Anyway? the podcast. What is Opera Anyway? is a 501c3 nonprofit organization designed to bring a comprehensive opera education program directly to you, to your computer screen, to your headphones, and to the classroom. Through diverse programming, participants will learn many ways to answer the question, what is opera anyway? Our podcast is supported in part by a grant from the Andover Cultural Council, a local agency which is supported by the Mass Cultural Council, a state agency. To support WIOA or to learn more about our other programs, you can check out our website at whatisoperaanyway.org. You can sponsor a student lesson or an episode of this podcast, but we welcome donations of any size. And of course, because we're a nonprofit, all your donations are tax deductible. You can also help us by spreading the word about our organization and what we do. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook. And check out our website for some cute merch we have on sale. If you'd like to be a guest on our podcast, or if you have a question about opera, you can contact us. And tune in every other Wednesday, or better yet, follow or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, you can leave us a rating and a review. The composer of our overture is Reagan Castile. You can hear more of her work at reagancastile.com. Our podcast logo was designed by Francesca Leonetta and Hannah Stokes. Our social media is done by Vina Akama-Makia. Our producers, technical directors, and editors are Jeremy Lopez and Noah Sesling, and our executive producer is Francesca Leonetta. I'm Josh Lau. Thank you for listening. I've got so much more to learn about opera, and maybe you do too, because what is opera anyway? <laughs>